and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I wanted to let you know how you might be able to help me out here at the podcast. I've got a new book out, and I wanted to tell you all about it before we get into the podcast. So first of all, it's called Shift Your Mind. It breaks down nine mental shifts to help you thrive in preparation and performance. It took me about four years to write the book. And I'm extremely excited to share it with you. Uh, If you're interested in pre-ordering the book, you can do so at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound. You can also go to my website, www.strongskills.co slash book, and you can see all the links to figure out how to purchase it. If you are also interested in buying a bulk order of at least 20 or more copies, we've created a special offer that includes a shout out on this podcast, which we're going to get to in a minute an hour-long Zoom call with myself to discuss the book with your team, with your book club, with your family and friends, whoever it might be, and a mention on social media. So we hope that you'll find the book helpful. I'm really excited for it to go live in just a few weeks here. It's, it's kind of crazy to think that we're almost at the point where it's going to be in your hands and my hands. So um, it's scary and exciting all at the same time. And I just want to shout out a few people that have already put in bulk orders. So Sienna Men's Basketball is led by Coach Carm and wanted to give Coach Carm a shout out. He's doing amazing stuff in a bunch of different ways, including beyond basketball. So uh, thanks to Coach Carm for the support and looking forward to chatting with your team in November to, to talk about how they could shift their mind. Nancy Bubis is an amazing real estate agent in the Washington, D.C. area and has an amazing team. She's formed a pretty incredible group that is number one in the region here in the D.C. area, 15th in the nation. They did $223 million in sales in 2019. She's just a powerhouse and looking forward to chatting with her team next month as well. And then lastly, Chip Mitchell. Just want to give Chip a shout out for supporting the podcast. I know he's a big Washington Capitals fan, so we'll give the Caps a shout out as well for Chip. So thank you all for your support. We'll continue to give these shout outs. And if you are interested in buying a bulk order, just hit me up at brian at strongskills.co. Thank you all for your continued support. Now to today's guest. Matt Long was connected to me through Matt Del Negro, who is a former podcast guest. And Matt Del Negro has a great podcast as well called 10,000 Knows. And he said, Brian, this is probably my favorite person I've interviewed. So that meant a lot coming from Matt. So he introduced me to the other Matt, Matt Long. And Matt's been a competitive athlete his entire life. He played Division I basketball at Iona. He completed an Ironman in 2005 and completed the New York City Marathon in 2008. And all of those accomplishments would certainly be enough for me to be curious to learn from him and have him on the podcast. But Matt has also overcome just absolutely amazing adversity. He worked as a firefighter in New York City, which we'll talk about in this conversation. And on his way to work in 2005, his life changed in an instant. He was cycling to work in an early morning when he was struck and run over by a 20-ton bus, making an illegal turn. The injuries he sustained pushed him to the brink of death, and he'll talk about that. 
with pretty amazing transparency in this conversation. He received 68 units of blood in the first 40 hours after the accident and spent five months in the hospital. More than 40 operations later, he finally began a grueling rehab regimen and he was able to walk again. And that was 2005. And I said he completed the New York City Marathon in 2008. So, um, I mean, his story is just inspiring, remarkable. And I'm going to let him tell it because he's going to do far better job than, than I will. But wanted to give you a glimpse on what you're about to listen to if you're not familiar with Matt. And I was just blown away by him. Also, toward the end of this conversation, we start talking about empathy. And one thing I want to note uh, that may have gotten lost in translation is I believe that empathy is really valuable. I had Megan Phelps Roper on the podcast, and she has an amazing TED Talk about empathy. And I remember asking Megan at the end, when does empathy go too far? And she mentioned when violence is involved and, and when people are uh, performing violent acts. And we live in a hostile really interesting time right now. And so I just want to note that I'm a big believer in empathy, but I also believe that there comes a time where you have to stand up to people, especially if they're threatening others in a hostile manner or in a violent manner. And so Megan has taught me a lot over the years, and I just wanted to share that as a primer for this conversation. Other than that, though, you're going to love listening to Matt and learning his story. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Matt Long. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We were connected by another Matt, Matt Del Negro, who has a different background than you, but also some similarities to you. I think you're both Division One athletes uh, and both uh, were involved with a bar at some point. And so I'm excited to chat with you basically because Matt Del Negro said, hey, this is the best guy that I've interviewed and he's interviewed a lot of different people. And then when I looked into your background and your story, I said, yeah, I think he's going to fit the podcast pretty nicely. So this should be interesting and fun. And I know I'll learn a lot. So I'm excited to chat with you. I actually wanted to start sort of going way back and get a sense of what life was like for you as a kid, your upbringing. Um, I, I learned a little bit about it when you went on Matt's podcast. I know you have a big family, but talk about what life was like for you as a kid. Uh, hey, Brian, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so I'm two. I'm the second oldest of nine children. So I grew up in a very big family. Uh, seven boys, two girls is the split. Um, you know, there there was never a shortage of someone to play with, fight with. You know, uh, or or never a shortage of uh, enough people to put a team together. You know, we could field a baseball team, a baseball field. Um, life was, uh, you know, it's pr- was pretty ordinary, and. Uh, just running around, hustling and bustling. We grew up in, most of us, we moved uh, in our life only once, but most of us, the older, the older four grew up pretty much in, in East New York, Brooklyn, a place called Cypress Hills, uh, where I remember as a kid, you know, roller hockey in the street, um, stickball. I mean, they don't even know what stickball is anymore, but stickball, um, playing different games in the streets, Skelzy, uh, Man of War, war all these different kind of things kicked in so so a very active childhood um outside of of regular in school sports basketball and it was just basketball and baseball back then maybe a little football in my family tossed in but but not much more than that um you know the best thing about growing up uh, with so many of us is my mom and dad did a really good job of of um i guess hiding what the truth or the facts really were or of, of how the family was doing. So as a kid, I, I had no complaints. You know, I, I never complained about what was on the table for dinner. I mean, I didn't, I complained about what I was forced to eat, but I didn't know that there was a hardship getting it there. Uh, my dad owned a small ice cream parlor every Wednesday after school that half day we're a Catholic school at half day on Wednesdays, went right to the ice cream parlor, get free ice cream. Uh, Sundays at the church, right to the ice cream parlor for breakfast and ice cream. So as far as we were concerned, we, we were all not only pretty popular in the neighborhood because of the ice cream store, but uh, everything was really good growing up. Uh, it's not until you get older you find out the hardships they had. I was texting with my friend last night who their family did, uh, they would do the wholesale ice cream in the area. And he ran in second grade. His name's Paul Berliner. Shout out to Paul. He ran for class president or whatever, student government, second grade 
on that he was going to get everybody ice cream. And I was like, this is bullshit, man. Like, you can't do that. That's not fair. At any rate, so I get how you guys would be a popular family in the neighborhood. Um, nine, nine kids. Uh, what, what, how do you think that impacted you? How do you think that shaped the person that you are having that many siblings? Oh, wow. Um, I, I, I think, you know, looking back, obviously nine different, look, we're one family, but that's nine different personalities. Yeah. Everyone has some similarities, but, uh, we don't always all get along. Uh, so what do I think it impacted me is it taught me one that you, you can, you can love someone that has a different opinion or, or a, um, a different way of getting something done. You can still love them and have feel admiration for them. Um, and two, it, it taught me that, Hey, I'm going to go out into life and, you know, college and meet different people. I, you know, I, I'm, we're all going to have different opinions and how do I deal with it? Just same way I deal with my brothers and sisters. You know, the ones you really don't want to listen to you toss aside and they're not in your life. Were there any values that you think were passed down to you and your siblings from mom and dad? Of course. Um, I think the biggest one, uh, my dad was a Marine. He, he didn't, he didn't go to college. He went from high school to the Marines before he opened the ice cream parlor. And back then they called him, he was a soda jerk. Um, but, uh, you know, hard work will always pay off. Oh, um, integrity, honesty. And I think one of the biggest things that he taught me as a, as I was getting older was, was accountability, you know, ownership of what your actions are. And I remember a couple of times he's like, look, he tell me you're in trouble. But if you tell me the truth, that'll determine how much trouble you're in. You, you lie to me and you're going to find out, you know, what, what this Marine's going to do to you. Um, so he goes, so you, you take the, you take the path right now, own it and we'll fix it. And I'll back you to the end of, I have to back you, you know? So I think he always told me to tell the truth, no matter what the outcome and, and own up to your mistakes as well as your uh, successes. Dad was old school, military, discipline. Um, what, was, what was mom like? Uh, well, mom was the one who, she didn't start working until we all got a little older and, and um, maybe there was two or three kids left uh, in, in grade school. So she was the one who kept the house together. She was the one who kept everything in order. She ran the household. She was strict. Uh, and if she couldn't handle... Uh, which wasn't often, but if she couldn't handle uh, our reactions to her laying the law down, then at eight, nine o'clock at night, when my dad came home from the ice cream parlor, you got it. <laughs> so he, he closed the door on what she couldn't handle, but she did a good job. And Catholicism, you mentioned Catholic school and going to church. How did that shape your, your upbringing? And I'm curious to hear how it shapes how you think about spirituality, religion, what have you today. Yeah, uh, yeah. So my parents were able to uh, scrape together and put all nine of us through Catholic school up until high school, which was phenomenal. Um, I think I think it, you know, everything that my dad and mom taught us about honesty and trust and loving and faith, being faithful, it came right from from being in the Catholic school system. Um, I I have no my kids are in Catholic school and they'll go to Catholic school until high school's over. Uh, I'm not knocking some of the schools around here are pretty decent, but, um, I, I, I want that part of, of, of God and, and believing in something, a higher power, uh, and, and they, they could change it when they want, when they get older, but right now it's, they're in Catholic school. Um, and, and I, and I'm not an overly religious, uh, person. I go to church on Sundays. Um, sometimes because what happened to me, I, I take it a little more a little lightly. And I, I think, well, I got so close to heaven that um, I have a special relationship and he, I, I was sent back down. So I, I, I am a firm believer. Uh, and I think you should believe in something. If someone who doesn't have uh, a faith or belief in something above ourselves um, is, is wandering around the earth with, with, with less purpose than, than others. Sure. And you mentioned sports being a big part of your life. Was basketball the sport that you gravitated toward or, um, and, and if so, why? Yeah, I, I played roller hockey when I was young. I, I dabbled in, 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 uh, Linvet's football league, you know, when I was young, but basketball, I enjoyed, I, I, I did I excel at it? No. Was I better than the, most of the kids I played with locally? Yes. 
Um, but I, but I really did enjoy it. I enjoyed teamwork aspects from it. I enjoyed, uh, working hard. I enjoyed face to face competitiveness with, with another friend or, you know, the stranger of, you know, playing against another high school. Um, I enjoyed putting on a uniform and taking pride in it and going out there on the court and giving my best. So basketball was my sport of choice. Um, when I got into high school, it, I moved further down the bench, closer to the water cooler. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but I did have a dream to play in college, and I, I didn't let that go. I, I, I went to a Division I college and tried out every year until I made the team. What year did you make the team? 1989, my senior year at Iona. I walked on. So freshman, sophomore, junior year, you're cut every single year. You play like intramurals probably with the guys or you're playing ball, stay in shape. Like what was that like getting cut every year? Uh, you know, um, I knew it was a reach, but, but I, I, I try to tell my kids now, I'm like, you know, if you have something, you have a dream and I don't care how big your dream is, you, you work on it, you give it your best effort and you never know if it comes true. And uh, that was a dream of mine to play college ball. You know, when I got to college, was I pounding the pavement with the ball every day? No. In fact, I I was a two-sport athlete in college. I switched completely and played rugby for two years. So, two, you know, I love the team sport. I love putting on a uniform, but completely different sport. So, you know, try to explain that to my kids now. Rugby, they're like, what? I go, yeah, you got to throw the ball backwards to move forward. And they're like, uh, no. And But, uh, yeah, you know, every year I got cut, and every year I asked the coach one question. I said, what is it that I can do to fulfill this dream I've had? I said, you know, I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to be 6'10". I'm, I'm 5'11", 6 foot at best. I said, what can I do between now and next year? I can be part of this team. And he gave me some pointers and tips and sent me on my way. And every year I showed up. What was it like to make the team senior year? Uh, it, 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 was, it was an awesome experience. Uh, I was super stoked, especially since I went into it thinking – I went into that tryout thinking, hey, I've been here for three years. How can the coach cut me now? And I told you I played two sports. So I, I, got, I didn't just live and breathe. I own a college basketball. I went to play rugby. And I missed a rugby practice to try out for the team, only to find out that the coach was gone. And we hired a new coach, Gary Brokaw, who, who's now or was a director of uh, relations for the NBA. He came as an assistant from – from Notre Dame to the head coach at Iona and he made it flat out clear. He didn't want a walk on, but I guess that NCAA regulations say you have to have the tryout to offer it and see what happens. You don't have to take someone, but he had the tryout and uh, I was like, Oh man, this guy doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know I've been here for three years. Everything just went down a notch, but uh, yeah, I I got lucky to make it through his, his uh, tryouts and get put on the team. Why do you, why do you think he gave you an opportunity? It, it reminds me of like Rudy, the story of Rudy Rudiker, where it's a little different because he's on the team, but there's this promise that he can dress one game and then new coach comes in and they all have to lay the jerseys down on the table and say, you can take my spot. He can take my spot. Uh, but like, so this new coach comes in, you're not on the team. Like you're, you're, you're just a senior that's trying out for the team. Why, why did he give you an opportunity to, to make the team? Well, he, he, he did give me the opportunity, and he, and he did give it with a disclaimer. He told me flat out, you are never going to play. Um, but why do I think he, he afforded me the opportunity? And I'll tell you, our tryouts were very peculiar. So he, he got about 20, 24 guys that show up for tryouts. And for almost two weeks, we watched the scholarship players practice at various times, sometimes six in the morning, sometimes seven or eight at night. We just sat on the bench watching. And little by little, that 24 guys turned to 12 and 12 turned to six and six turned to three. And there was three of us after maybe 10 days, 10 practices. And and he looked at the three of us and said, hey, you guys have showed me you're committed. And after that team practice, he got us on the court and every day we were dressed to play. We never did a thing. He took, he took the three of us on the court and he drilled us for like an hour. The sweat was pouring off all of us. 
And he basically said, I have room for one person. First one to hit two foul shots is on my team. I hit two foul shots. Now I have a, I have a, always have a side story when I go around doing public speaking about how I lead into that, but I hit the two foul shots and, uh, and he gave me the opportunity to play. Do you remember what it felt like to like literally felt in your body what it felt like when he said, Hey, you, you made it. Oh, it, 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 euphoria. I, I, I was this, I, I was just on a zoom call with college roommates and, uh, and fraternity brothers that I was at school with. We had about 18 guys show up for the zoom call. And it's funny how at 53, you can go back almost 30 years, more than 30 years, and they could just start picking on you again. So I didn't see it this way, but according to my, my friends, that as soon as I made the team, the college, I own a college basketball sweatsuit, you know, back in 89 was my everyday attire. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. And they go, dude, they're like, it was walking by itself. Everyone that you, everyone knew you were on the team. And I'm like, ah, come on. It was that bad. They go every day. So, so they, they used to hide it from me. So and I looked for my sweatshirt. Where's my sweatshirt? <laughs> Matt, what did what did the basketball experience senior year give you that maybe the rugby experience wasn't? Because as I'm hearing you talk, I hear loving being a part of a team, love being part of something bigger than myself. I mean, rugby, for those that don't know, first of all, a very physical sport. But second of all, it's a real brotherhood. It's a there's like a drinking culture that comes with it. There is a brotherhood. Like that's what I would probably call rugby. Um, what, what were you going to get your senior year in basketball that you weren't getting from the rugby team? Well, I'll tell you something that I don't talk about often because it's, it's, uh, you'll never find any records of it, but, uh, yes, there was a drinking culture that goes with rugby and it was probably more prevalent in the earlier days in rugby when it was, uh, when rugby hit the States. Um, and for fact, like I own a college rugby was club rugby back then. Now we're one of the top 10 teams in the country. So I'm sure there's still a drinking culture, but it's, it's not like it was. So um, long story short, my senior year of rugby, uh, the fall season, we played Fordham, our rival from the Bronx. And uh, the, I, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was still in my rugby uniform and being put in the back of a police car because I was just stumbling home drunk. Um, so that, that was like two nights before basketball tryouts. And I said, yeah, maybe I need, maybe I need another path. So basketball might have pulled me from the brink of, uh, of going down a bad road. Um, it was all good. I mean, my rugby guys asked me to come back. They said, you're not going to, you know, they knew I wasn't going to play, but it was a dream of mine to play college ball. So uh, what, what it got for me, to be honest with you, was I, 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 now I'm looking at a different picture. I, I'm not playing pro ball. I'm not going to play in Europe. But I'm a part of a team of very talented, young um scholarship D1 basketball players. I'm going to different universities to see big games and I got the best seat in the house. Uh, we played Seton Hall that year. They had Andrew Gaines, Pookie Wennington. Um, we had a guy who transferred from NC State who went on to the NBA, Sean Green. Uh, he was He's just an awesome guy and a good friend. Um, so I, the other, what the end game for me was, I left Iona College as a average student but on my resume, I said I played Division One college basketball, and every job, every job that I went for down in Wall Street afterwards offered me a job. It's interesting. I just finished interviewing Andrew Hawkins, who played in the NFL for seven years, and now does all kinds of stuff in marketing and uh, communications and entertainment. And he talked about he knew that football was a business opportunity for him, that if he leveraged it the right way, that when he went to go interview for jobs, they would, if they were going to decide between him and Joe Schmo, that him playing in the NFL would give him a leg up. So it sounds like you also had that figured out at that age. What did you want to do? What was the, what was the vision for your life, career path at 21, 22, whatever you were, uh, senior year of college? You know, I, um, I always thought I would wind up in Wall Street in some aspect. Uh, I studied accountant in, uh, accounting in Iona. Uh, I didn't particularly like being an accountant. So I thought I'd find myself down in Wall Street somehow, being a trader or a stockbroker. Um, I, I always I had a core group of friends that we always got together and talked about 
where we're going 25, 30, where we're going to be, what do we want to have? You know, of course, oh, I want to have my, my dream car by 30. Um, and a bunch of us always had this one thing. We always kind of just said, you know what? I don't know where I'm going, but I know I'm going to be all right. I know no matter what, I'm going to be all right. So I, I was an accountant for two years and it was not for me. Um, I wound up being the guy in, in the big eight accounting firm that was called every Friday for where's happy hour. Uh, where, you know, so I was the organizer, organizer of the happy hours, um, guest bartended here and there in the city. And then, you know, the, the big firm would come and see you, even if they don't know you, we got a guy from the firm working here tonight. Let's go for happy hour, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, so I turned that into, wait a minute, I should, I'm in the wrong business. And I opened my, fir my first bar at 25 years old. So I opened a bar uh, in Manhattan with my brother called Third and Long. Quit the accounting firm. And uh, boom, first time, as soon as I got my liquor license, I called that accounting firm and said, where are you guys going tonight? And they, they all showed up. Was there ever a draw to going to the military? No, I, you know, it just... Oh, I thought about it, but it, there was never a draw or a pull. Uh, and, and, and nor was there really a need in, in the time frame that I was growing up. Um, you know, I, I, do I think if I was younger after 9-11 happened, uh, that I would probably be one of those stories that you heard about or that signed up to go because of it? Yeah, that's, that's part of my makeup. Uh, but it, it, didn't, it didn't hit my uh, upbringing style. And, and then I wound up calling, you know, taking another call to duty, which was becoming a New York City firefighter. Yeah, why did so, that happen? Well, thanks. Thankfully, for my dad, always gave me some some pretty good advice when I was younger. And I was telling him, "I'm going to be at Wall Street, Wall Street, Wall Street. I'll be okay." He goes, "I get it." He goes, "And I'm not telling you you're not going to be okay, but where, where's your fallback?" You know, I, I I owned an ice cream bar. I own my own business. I have no fallback. Where's your fallback? So my brother Jim, we're only about 13 months apart, so we were always together, and um. He, he's like, I, I'm going to take all the tests, sanitation, police, fire, but, but I want to be a firefighter. So I looked at my dad. I said, you know what? I, I'll train with him. Uh, we'll do it together. And, and I'll take the fire test as my, as my fallback. At what age, Matt? At what age were you doing that? Oh, I, I, took, that, uh, I took that test in high school, mm -hmm. the written test in high school. I got called for the physical test when I was in college. And someone died taking the physical exam. That I, so my physical exam has been changed and altered, but the physical exam, physical exam I took was an obstacle course with with a uh, air Scott pack on your back, and or a vest, depending on what they had, and uh, you had 240 seconds to get 100. 245, you got a 95. 250, so like that. So two, anything below 240, you got 100. Uh, and there was mandatory stops. No matter how fast you finish one obstacle, you get to the next line, it, it's a 15-second wait. And that was all included in your time. Um, so uh, I took that when I was in college. Someone died to taking that test. So the hiring took six or seven years. I didn't get hired till I was 27. Mm. So it was almost an eight-year process. And the draw of Wall Street is money? Is that what would – is it just a – we're going to like car security uh, never at that point. Were you aware of some of the struggles that maybe dad had with the store or like what, what what's the alert to wall street? No, I think, I think it was, uh, let's say like I grew up in the eighties. I watched uh, the, the, the color of money, uh, uh, wall street, the movie, you know? Um, so I, I just think it was the lore of money um lifestyle lifestyle you know i i, I like getting dressed up you know i i always saw myself in a suit and tie kind of thing so yeah i think it was 100 the lore of of money that that was it it's just an interesting juxtaposition 
compared to firefighter. Um, and the, the firefighter is not the lure of money. <laughs> it's a, so it's just an interesting, but I understand that it's this backup plan. Okay. So at least I have a job. I know I'm secure. I have a skill. I have something that is going to be needed. Um, and then it's going to give me that blanket of security, so to speak. What's it like being a bar owner? What's that experience like being an entrepreneur at 25 and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're a business person. Uh, well, there's obviously there's different levels of the bar and restaurant business. My first bar was strictly a bar. We didn't even have pretzels. Um, so there's a lot less uh, stress. You, I'm, I'm focused more on the high-end profit margin side of the business, which is the alcohol, beer, and booze, and throwing a party. Yeah, right. Let's face it. I mean, I was throwing a party three nights a week. You know, trying to do it on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, but hey, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If you weren't if you weren't busy, you weren't making it. Um, so it, it, I enjoyed that. I I'm a people person. I liked being out on. So I, when I opened first, I started as a bartender. Quickly realized that once um, patrons started to come in and try, you know trying to make this local spot their home from either close to their office or near their apartment in Manhattan where they lived. You know, once they realize it's the owner behind the bar, it kind of changes things. So my brother and I got together with some friends. We put some more friends behind the bar, and I became more of a, a greeter on one side. Hey, make sure that person gets a drink. Make sure that one is, is comfortable. Or that guy's no good. Let's get him out. Uh, so I enjoyed that. I'm a people person. But, uh, but be, there's a lot of weight on your plate at 25 trying to be, uh, and you know, still living home with mom and dad trying to be a businessman. And then the decision to pursue firefighting, what was, what, what led to that? You mentioned sort of took you years to become it. Um, but you're, you're owning the bar. Are you thinking I can own the bar and be a firefighter? And those two combined would give you some fulfillment, but also some money. And maybe you combine the two. What, what's the thinking that goes into it? Yeah, that was exactly the thinking. You know, kind of, like I said, someone had passed away taking the test. So, so the hiring froze until they finished the investigation. And um, I, I'm, I'm two years into the bar business and opened the bar in 1991. And um, 1993, I get a letter in the mail saying, you know, welcome to New York City Fire Department. And at this point, I'm like, whoa, this is, this is uh, perfect. Fire Department, at least back then, there was a lot of levity with what you can do outside of work. And I was allowed to, to own and operate a business. Um, so I said, this is perfect. And my brother Jim knew now that he was going to get called. I edged him out on the test just a little bit. So he, he was going to get called maybe six months later. And I said, Jim, I, you know, I'll remove myself from the bar, go into the academy, you know, do my first year of probation where you can't do anything. And then when it's your turn, I, I'll go back to the bar. And that's what we did. And it was a perfect combination, perfect combination. Any, any fears back then, any concern about doing that job? Um, you know, this is pre nine 11 and I'm sure we'll get to nine 11, but, uh, any, any sort of fear in, in fighting fires. And I'm just curious to get to know your mindset as, as you're doing that job. Well, look, um, first of all, it was 1993 when I got hired and that was, um, yeah, 93. Um, that was when the first attempt to blow up the World Trade Center happened. Uh, I didn't think much of it uh, when I got in and started learning what the job was about. Yes, there's a fear factor. I would tend to challenge anyone that says uh, they're not afraid. If they're do, saying they're not, it's because uh, they're trying to be cool. Um, in my opinion, there's a thing, a thing called fear, controlled fear, is what is your checkpoint to keep you safe. Then there's blind courage is it's going to take you down a road you don't want to go down because it's just not safe. So I tell people, look, be as safe as possible. If you are afraid, maybe that's your internal checkpoint to say, wait a minute, maybe I've gone down the hall as far as I should at this point. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely a level of fear in it. And, and I think you'll see, you'll hear the Navy SEALs tell you that you'll hear 
you know, army rangers tell you that, that there's, there's a level of fear. What's your mindset in training and prep compared to when you actually get the call and you're going into a building that, that has a fire? Is it the same or is it different? How, talk about preparation compared to performance <clears throat> and how you think about that. So I think obviously when you're training, you can be more focused. Um, you know, let's just call it, there's that magic eraser there. If you're doing, if you, if you, so every day we would drill every shift. I shouldn't say every day. So in the morning, the day shift, you'll drill, whether it's before or after lunch, the night shift, you'll drill before or after dinner, you know, we, the captain or the senior man in the house, um, will pick a, a topic and say, okay, this is what we're going to drill on this week. Uh, so when you're drilling, it's obviously, oh, okay, Matt, what would you do here? You know, okay, decent idea, but no good. So we get the magic eraser and we, we go back and repeat. Now, when the shit hits the fan, the bells go off and you're going, you, you, you don't have that magic eraser. So you have to rely on what you did in training, but you never know what, you can't prepare for actually what you're going to see. You know, how the fire spread, what was a weak point, what was a strong point, you know, where, the safety of a building, you know, okay, we have a building five stories tall. It's a wood structure. There's a flat roof. Let's go up there and do it. Next thing you know, you get up on the roof and there's holes in the roof. You know, the, the landlord didn't take care of the building. So, you know, you, you adapt from, you take pieces from your training in real life and adapt to what the situation is at hand. You mentioned the SEALs and the Rangers, and I've spoken to a few of them on the podcast. And one of the things that is interesting to me is how they debrief. And after an event occurs, how critical they are. Did you guys have a debrief process after a live fire? And, and what would that look like? Always. I said, first of all, um, dependent on the severity of, of the job or the depth of what, what we just went through, whether it was an elevator emergency or, or a, an actual work and fire, or what we call an OSW, occupied structural worker. Um, that means it's buildings occupied by tenants and, you know, it was fire. Um, we would always get together. Now, if, if it was really, really like something really big happened, it, it's immediate. Everybody wash up, get in the kitchen. And we would tell the chief we're taking two hours. Now that two hours was for cleaning and getting the rig ready for the second or next time we get called and then cleaned up and go over what we just did. So what would it look like is basically, I was in a double house, a truck and an engine. The engine guys are, are the actual firefighters. They come in with the hose, they follow up, and they, you know, they're putting the beast down. The truck guys are doing more ventilation and, and, and search and rescue. We would go over every position, you know, start with the first guy, what'd you do, what'd you see? Now, in the, in the, in the ladder company, where I, which I was in for my whole career, uh, there are two positions that operate alone. At least it's changed a bit since I'm gone, but they, they usually operate alone. And that's the outside vent man who has got to get to the rear of the building and be eyes for the rear of the building for the ones who are going inside and the chief out in the street. And then there's the roof man. His job is to get to the roof. And that was one of the things when I first got on a job, I was like, you're the roof man? Nothing stops you from getting to the roof. We need to see all four sides of this building. We need to hear from you quickly. So when I was young, nothing stopped me from getting to the roof. I had to get there. And you, you could have to go six, six buildings down so you could break into the other building, climb their stairs, and then hop over six parapets to get to the fire building. But you had to get there. So we would go over each position individually, talk about any mistakes that were made, what we could have done better, what we saw, where you found the victims. Oh, hey, do you guys know that these big TVs are coming into sight now? You know, back in 91, no one had plasma TVs. Now they're plasma TVs. They're falling off the wall during a fire. That's a hazard for us. So stuff like that. And Matt, look, you mentioned big events and there's no bigger event, at least in, in my lifetime, and I think in our country's history, when it comes to firefighting, uh, the 9-11 uh, being in, in New York, what was that day like for you? Um, you know, it's still a very uh, surreal moment. Uh, I was working that day. 
My brother and I were both working. My brother Jim, he worked in the same battalion as I did. We were both working that day. Uh, my firehouse went down to the Trade Center, and we got there uh, before the second tower collapsed. Um, it was, um, you know, it's nothing I ever want to go through again. Uh, it wasn't as uh, gory as you we would have thought. Personally, I, I didn't see anything. I didn't see any blood. I didn't see any body parts. I didn't, I didn't see anything because everything was just decimated. Um, and just think about going there at, at 8.30 in the morning and not leave until 2.33 in the morning. And, you know, as the day goes by each hour, you're, you're getting a, a message of who's missing, who they're looking for. Um, and it's just name after name after name. And not only of my fire department friends, um, I, I happen to just live like Rockaway Beach is blue collar USA. It, it's all cops, firemen, garbage guys. It, 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 it was just awful. You know, a, a number of Wall Street guys that I knew, gone. Um, cops and firemen gone it, it, it was it was just it was it was one day that i i guess i if i wish i could go back and have not happened i would that's the day i would have it have it done how has it shaped your life um well it did two things for me one um it, it's it sent me post 9 11 um i i i was the first time i ever saw it sought professional help, uh, psychological help. Um, my bar was still open. My business, I actually owned, uh, three bars at this time and with friends and, um, I, I was drinking too much. So it changed, it changed me for bad. Um, took me through a journey where I was no longer happy. I got out of shape. Um, and quite frankly, I, I guess what I really did was stop dreaming about things I wanted to do and was just burying everything in, in the bottle. You know, um, it took a while, but uh, when I had a little mindset shift and wanted to do better, I wanted to feel better about myself. I, uh, that happened, thank God. But uh, little did I know that it, it would also set me up for success the next time that I felt that I was falling into depression. We'll get into more of your journey, but what were your dreams prior to nine eleven? Like, what were you thinking you wanted to do that all of a sudden you weren't thinking about as much? Well, uh, you know, the funny thing is, that even though I didn't play much in college uh, on the basketball team, um, when I became a firefighter, little did I know that they had a, uh, you know, New York City had a fire department basketball team, and that, I, that afforded me staying in shape playing ball took me all over the world. I played in New Zealand, Australia, Canada. Um, and I would go to these police fire Olympics. So I, I always had the passion for com to compete. And those were my dreams to keep it up uh, as well as being a successful businessman. That's what I wanted to do. Open another bar and, and have all the things I could. Um, after September 11th, you know, things changed, lost a lot of really good friends. And when, uh, when I decided to pick up the pieces with my with myself and say, "All right, you know, what what was I doing?" Um, you know, I did this life audit or inventory check of what I call, and I said, "What was I doing?" You know, five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, when I was happiest. Like, what? what you know, why why am I not? Why am I in a funk right now? And compared to why I wasn't in a funk five years ago, and. Um, what, what came to me right away was I wasn't dreaming. I wasn't setting goals for, for anything. So here I am, 36, 35, 36 years old when 9-11 happened. And I said, okay, I got to set some goals for myself. Basketball is out. I'm not playing basketball anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm slow. Uh, I'm getting older. My back hurts, blah, 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 blah. I had all these excuses. But I did realize that as a firefighter, that's something I wanted to do for 20, 25 years of my life. Uh, and I didn't want to, I never had aspirations of studying. So I wanted to stay at 43 truck, um, where I, where I worked. And, um, I, I said, but I'm the, I'm the best tool in the bag. 
you know, my body, my own health. So I said, all right, let's, let's get, let's get some things in the, in the works. So I said, training again, I started running. I want to do a marathon. I want to do a triathlon. Let's see how far I could take this. And little by little, uh, the weight started coming off. The strength started coming back. The back didn't hurt anymore. The smile was coming back to my face. You know, I was having beers. I didn't stop drinking. I said, but I was having my beers as, as oh man, that was a great 10 mile run. Let's go out for a couple of beers. It wasn't, I'm miserable. Let's go out and drink my face off. So um, life changed quickly. Smile came back. I was happy going to work, uh, and and I was getting into the best shape of my life. So that was that was awesome. And, and that's what's one of the things I realized I needed. To, you need to always do is you always need to have something to look forward to, big or small. Was there someone or something or some night that? made you was there like a watershed moment that occurred that said gosh i need to go get help or was it just cumulative and eventually you just said hey it's something i need to do at that point it was just cumulative it was just something like hey you know what's going on here and 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 then the 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 line was thrown into the water by my friend who said um hey dude why don't we uh raise some money for the leukemia foundation and do this triathlon and I was never backing down from challenges. So I said, Hey, dude, I'm in. I just had, I just needed a bike and I needed to learn how to swim. Hmm. <laughs> so he's like, okay, let's go. All right, Matt, I want to pressure test this a little bit with you. We're right now going through the coronavirus uh, situation and I've interviewed a lot of different people with a lot of different experiences. And one constant that I hear from a lot of people that have done pretty awesome things in their life is that when they're facing adversity, they think about others and how they can help others. And I'm thinking of you during this time where maybe you're dealing with some alcohol or depression or whatever you want to call those challenges. What, what helped you focus and set some goals was actually something that would raise money for somebody else um, and go to a challenge for somebody else. And for people that are listening to this, that's been something that I've come to realize that like when I'm struggling, just try to help other people. And, uh, I think a lot of times that can be a path forward for us. And I think for right now, there are people that have health issues there are people that are dying. There are people that are losing their jobs. Um, and it's hard sometimes to not go into woe is me, but a lot of times, um, and I'm not putting myself in any of those people's shoes. I just know that happiness and helping others are correlated and there's research and science to back that up. So um, it's just an interesting thought as I'm hearing your story. Uh, and then training for the triathlon and competing and all that stuff. Tell me about that and what that's like. Well, I agree with you hundred percent on a lot of stuff. You know, you, you, you don't, you don't know how much good you're doing for yourself when you do for others. When the end result is, let me take care of this person or this cause, and it's done. And at the end of the day, right? At the end of the day, you go home, you go, wow, I feel really good about myself. So I, I agree with that point that you made. Um, and, and getting to the triathlon, you know, it's the same. Even though it's an individual sport, um, sometimes when you're doing endurance sports like marathon and or, or Ironman, it's, it's not about race day. Um, yeah, I wanted to do the best I could. I was a competitive person. I said, but, but I, I trained with 10, maybe 15 people that we met every morning in Central Park. We met at a pool. We met Saturdays to go for long bike rides. Um, the triathlon uh, community, okay, of guys and girls from all different walks of life, firefighters, Wall Street, you know, nurses and doctors, um, be, became my social circle. And you know, instead of going out late on, and, and I'm in the bar and restaurant business, so I wasn't out to 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning on Friday night because I had to get up at 6 because we were going for a 100-mile bike ride. So I maybe I'd meet that crew for happy hour. So um, the camaraderie, the team aspect came in the form of training. And the best part about it is um, we were all different abilities, but we held each other accountable. You know, and I didn't want to let them down, so I'm showing up. And yeah. they didn't want to let me down, so they showed up. You just hit on like there's purpose, there's <laughs> camaraderie. These are all the things that if you're looking for a meaningful life, I mean, I just think that there are commonalities that we can all strive for. We're, we're designed to be social beings. We're not designed to be in isolation. Uh, we're all figuring that out right now. I don't care how introverted you are. It's, it's still we're designed to be social creatures. You're on your bike, you know, 
were you riding to the firehouse when you got hit? What, when, what were you doing? Were you training? Well, I was working. I got detailed to uh, the fire academy for, uh, I, I think usually when you get details like that, there you have to commit to some level of time. So, so I put in a, a year uh, in the fitness unit of all places. Uh, as I'm training for an Ironman, I'm running the marathon. And, um, and I went over to, to work with the new recruits. We call them probies, probationary firefighters. Um, and I was in, I was in the health and fitness unit. So I would, um, if there was a class of 300, we would take, uh, break them into 75 to hundred groups. And, you know, every day we'd put them through their testing. We'd put them through, uh, physical fitness to get them in shape for, for the job. So I was riding my bike to the fire Academy when I was, when I was hit and run over by a bus. Yeah. And feel free to jump in as much or as little as you want here, but um, I'll, I'll fill in a little bit of the gaps. You get hit by this bus and you have less than 1% chance of, of survival. And look, I think everyone always says adversity is an opportunity to learn and grow. I'm a big believer that it's not the adversity. It's the reflection on the adversity that actually is where you learn. There are plenty of people that get that have something awful happen to them, a fluke thing, and they don't learn anything from it. Um, and they don't actually get anything from it. Um, so I'd love to just get into your head as far as what that journey was like. Um, and I think sometimes we sugarcoat adversity and like we forget about the physical, emotional, mental, spiritual toll that tra- trauma has um, on people. So I don't want any of that to get lost in this conversation as well. Um, but I would just love to know your experience and, um, learn from you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, I like, I like, I like to, um, you know, I think, I think the word itself is sometimes overused. Uh, and I like to put a different twist on it because the word is always followed by overcome or precedes overcome. I overcame adversity. Oh, she overcame a lot of it. Well, I say bullshit. Okay. I said, I was run over by a bus. Okay. My injuries are my lag in adversity. I had to learn to live with it. So I, I like to tell people it's not about overcoming adversity, except because adversity comes in all walks. It comes in all directions, all different ways. To, and and, and a bro, I, I mineralize it to a broken toe to you, Brian, is going to be different than a broken toe to me. So let's just say this. Don't overcome the adversity. Don't try to overcome it. Accept the adversity and learn to live with it. You know, uh, we can go down a thousand holes uh, for what someone may call adversity. The way they were brought up, the color of their skin, uh, you know, the injuries, the, the illnesses, the, the, the abusive parents. It's overused, especially when it precedes overcoming. You don't overcome adversity. You learn to live with it and you do the best you can. And that's what I did. I still walk with a limp. I still have problems going to the bathroom. I still have things that are, 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 are issues every day that you and, and everyone else may take for granted. But guess what? I get up every morning and I look at the day like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get things done? Just some days I, I tell my family, I'm sorry, I'm not making it because my system's not working for me today. But it doesn't stop me from thinking positive. It doesn't stop me thinking that I'm not going to get something done and enjoy my life. What's different about your mindset today than 20 years ago? Well, I guess 20 years ago, I never thought I'd be in this situation. I remember I told you early in the talk that whenever I was with my friends, we talked about, you know, college kids and we talked about what we were going to do in our lives. And I said, I'm not sure. Or he said, he's not sure, but we all agreed that we were going to be okay. So I guess I always had that everything's going to be all right mindset, but now it's more driven, you know, uh, now it's more driven. I, 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 I lived through nine 11 mental adversity right there. I, that's not going away. That's still in my heart. You know, I put a tattoo on my arm about it, a tattoo on my leg about it, that I live with that. And then I get run over by a bus, have to teach myself how to walk again, 43 different surgeries, have to teach myself how to go to the bathroom again, have to do all things that, that you take for granted. 
and I'm still pushing myself. I'm still pushing the limits. So I think what's different now is just, it's more of a driven, uh, uh, proven mindset of if you have the right attitude, anything is freaking possible. There's also, I've had on a number of people who have faced death um, in the eyes. You mentioned sort of having, like you're on your way up and uh, you come, come back down. During this time, a lot of them have said like, yeah, I know that I could die tomorrow. Like there is a real, their, their event, a lot of them will say like, I, I, I have this realization that nothing is guaranteed tomorrow. Um, do you have that? Do you have that sort of thought? And, and I think about coronavirus because there is now everyone's feeling it a little bit like, oh, wait, I might get this tomorrow and I could die. The reality is we all could get anything tomorrow and die. We all could get hit by a bus tomorrow. It's, it's like a phrase. Is, is that something that's new for you? And when I say new, I mean uh, like post-accident. Um, I think it happened like 15 years ago. So it's not new, but did, did your mindset change on your relationship with death and life as a result? Yes, yes 100%. Uh, uh, and it may have started changing after 9-11. Um, but, but 100%, uh, change uh, unfortunately I have a very, uh, nonchalant approach when it comes to talking about death and experiencing it. So I don't fall apart. Um, I, I'll, I'll cry when I need to cry. Um, but I know that the one thing that we are all guaranteed in life from the moment we are born is that we will die. And uh, that may sound really awful. I'm not a bad person if you're listening, but it is true. And, you know, bringing it to today's uh, events with the coronavirus, you know, I I try not to get involved in crap on social media. I I post my own stuff. But lately I'm like, you know, enough's enough. Uh, I'm I'm listening to both sides of the story. I'm hearing what's coming down from, from our government and the people they decided to believe in. But I'm also looking at people who say, wait a minute. You know, I've, I've studied 20 years in epidemiology and biochemistry, and I, I don't see it that way. And that's the beauty of our country. We're supposed to be able to have the right to formulate our own opinion and go to the sources we want to follow. So I posted something that, hey, this makes sense. Now, it was bucking what government is sending down our way in this lockdown. And uh, I know 100,000 people died. Uh, but I'm like, wait a minute. This makes perfect sense to me. So I posted it and then I got lambasted, right? People coming after me and all this stuff. And I, and, I, and I actually said to them, I said, look, you're missing my point. I'm just looking at the stats and this is from the CDC. So these are actual numbers. It's not a conspiracy. It doesn't make sense what we're doing. I said, we're shutting down the world. As bad as it sounds, we're shutting down the world for 100,000 people that passed. But people are still dying from the flu and other diseases and other things. I get it. It's not the flu. It's different. It's scary. I said, but here's the deal. We don't know the ramifications of what we're doing. The drug and alcoholism addiction, the, the, the suicide because their business, their livelihoods are gone. Who didn't go for their mammograms? Who didn't go for prostate cancer checkups because they're afraid to go to the hospital? I'm one of them. I'm three months behind. So, so I'm, like, I'm like, the bottom line is this. I was run over by a bus, riding my bike, and I still ride a bike. We have to get back to, to opening our country. And that's, that's what I was going with, and I was getting killed by it. But I'm like, you know, I feel bad. I, I have six friends, and I don't keep a scorecard. That's my biggest thing. So someone said, hit me with, oh, my, my little Johnny died, Uncle Boots, you know, Aunt Susan died. Don't give me your scorecard on social media if – you don't know mine. Yeah. I know six people personally that passed away and I'm not preaching about that. I'm not bringing them into the conversation. I'm saying we're doing more harm than good at this point and we have to look at all the opinions. Yeah, I think it's, it's, <laughs> it, no, it's certainly complicated and I think empathy yeah. is really important and empathy is not letting go of what you believe in. You can have conviction in what you believe in. It's just having understanding for what the other person believes in. One of the exercises I've been doing with my clients um, is to have them 
argue on the behalf of the people in Michigan that are going to the state house with their guns and then argue on the, on the behalf of the person that's in their basement and afraid to leave the house. And I think if we can have empathy for, for both and understanding, then by the way, we can have more conviction on what we believe in because we then are saying, okay, I understand X, Y, and Z. And here's why I actually think you're wrong. And it's actually a better argument when we step into someone else's shoes, we, we make a more sound, argument, negotiation, uh, the key to negotiation is empathy. It's understanding what the other yeah. person wants and then figuring out a way to get that person what they want. So rather than, you know, the politics are the politics and the beliefs are the beliefs. Like for me, I, we're, what I'm most interested in, and maybe we can start to wind down with, with this, which is um, that notion of life and death and your capacity having faced death to realize, okay, I've faced death now. I'm going to step into life and this is what life looks like for me. Uh, and this is what living is going to look like to me. So I'd like to finish with what do you intentionally do to make sure that you're at your best on a daily basis or a weekly basis or an annual basis? Like what are the things that you do to make sure you're mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually where you need to be? Well, uh, okay. Well, first of all, I put trust in my faith and, and I do believe in God and I, I trust that, that he uh, is, is in charge of my path. Okay. Um, so, so I do put a lot of trust in my faith. Um, and, and the, the rest of it is, look, I, I, was I dealt a bad hand? Absolutely. You know, I was in this horrific accident. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm at 53. I'm, I'm, you know, starting to feel the effects of arthritis and everything else and limitations on range of motion and body movements and strength. So the, one of the first things I do is I, I have a, a, a passion for taking care of myself. I, if I don't exercise, uh, everything changes. All my reactions change. And I know it's scientifically proven for everyone, but for me, it's more important. I have to get up. I have to do something. If it doesn't happen by two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon, it doesn't mean it's not, but my day is probably not going to go as smooth as, as normal. So I like to hit it in the morning, take care of myself. And it's not always, it's, I'm not, young anymore so it's not always some crazy ass workout it, it, i just want to take care of myself i'm gonna sweat get some endorphins built up clear the head hey what are we talking about today so so i that's how i like to start my day and, and i think when i do it i get to think about the things that are really important and i know we're talking life or death but I, um you know just one last point I'll, I'll make is you know i have a 15 16 year old daughter she's starting to think about what she wants to do and where she wants to go to college. And she talks about she, she would like to play soccer in college. And I'm like, all right, great. My wife is a daughter of a two-star admiral from the Navy. And, and she brings up last night, she goes, oh, maybe I'll look into like, uh, she wants to be a nurse. So she goes, maybe I'll look into some of these uh, ROTC programs for the Navy nursing. And that will help me get into a decent school where I might be able to play soccer and, and, and go to school for free, whatever. I'm like, wow. So my, I just did a, a 35, 40 minute rowing workout. And the whole time I'm thinking about her decision and the pressure she's going to have, you know, she's the granddaughter of a two-star admiral. So I, I came in after my workout and, and immediately had a great conversation with her. I said, to her, Hey, I got to talk to you about something. I said, I was out there rowing thinking about you. And I want to let you know that no matter what you do or what path you choose, I will, Always be proud of you if you give it your all. You're going to get a lot of opinions from the family about what you're looking to do. I said, but if, if you tell me you want to be an actress, you're senior year of high school and you're not going to be a nurse and you're not going to go the ROTC military route, give it your all and I'll be proud of you no matter what. And she walked away from me and she's my stepdaughter and she walked away from me. She's like, thank you. And she calls me Matteo, cutely, whatever. And, and I think, I don't know if I would have had that conversation with her if I didn't get that exercise in and have time to think about it. Anyway, well, I know she, it's like, we were talking life or death, but to me, that's my life right now. And, and those are the things that drive me. I, 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 my, I'm on this podcast with you. I'm, I'm in a good mood. I got another call coming soon. But, but she, you know, that, that, was able, that, was, that was able to make my day. Awesome. Well, I love it. And your energy just shifted completely into more maybe optimistic, hopeful, more 
passion and I could feel that shift. So I'm glad we can end on that note. And if she wants to be an actress, Matt Del Negro will help her out when she moves <laughs> out to Hollywood and, and she'll have, maybe we'll call him uncle Matt Del Negro to take care of him, take care of her and make sure she's okay. Hopefully she doesn't get any ideas at 18 to go out there. I, I'll stay out of that one, but uh, yes, yes. Hey, hey Matt, thank you so much for your vulnerability, your willingness to share. Um, you know, you, you've seen some things in your life and uh, your willingness to share and open it up is certainly an inspiration. I'm sure you hear that all the time, but for me, it's the inspiration comes from not what happened to you, but how you're going about your life and how you're talking to your, your, your stepdaughter. And I think all of us think that we have to have something massive happen to us in order to live our life with purpose. And I think you're actually representative of not necessarily that and, and, and how we can do that every day. And that there is, we don't have to wait for us to experience 9-11, some catastrophe or get hit by a bus to connect with the people we love and to connect with each other. Um, I want to give you a platform to let people know where they can follow you on Twitter. They can tweet at you to tell you that you're wrong about what's going on in our society or you're right and you're brilliant. Um, but where can they find you on social? And then also, um, I know you do do speaking gigs and obviously that's complicated right now, but if people want to learn more about what you do, how you do it, um, and get connected with you, what's the best way for, for them to do that? I appreciate that opportunity. So I'm uh, 43 long underscore Matt, and that's on Twitter and Instagram. Um, Matt Long on, on LinkedIn, uh, Matthew Long on LinkedIn, I think. And uh, mattlongspeaker.com is my website. I'm doing, uh, I do have some events booked for the fall, which we're holding, hope that they'll happen. Uh, if not, I, I have kind of, uh, opened up my, uh, my, the possibilities of just appearing vir virtually like this in a Zoom conference or a Hangout. Uh, and I did two of them this month, which were actually pretty good. Uh, I, I didn't mind the pay cut to, uh, to not travel and have to leave home. I was like, well, I'll take the pay cut for that. But uh, I do like to travel. And I, I do prefer to be on stage uh, than sitting down talking through a lens. But, um, but yeah, that's where they can find me. And, and, and life is good. They can, they, I, I'm open. I like opinions. And I, I just think that I'm very hopeful that everything's going to change and go away. Um, but I hope it's sooner than later for the, I do, for I do small too. people's. I do too. And hopefully we can grab a beer and, and talk about all things, uh, both yourself and myself. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Matt, take us home. I will have you said that. I know I do. Uh, that'd be awesome. Uh, and I know I did my research on you. You're a Redskins fan. Yeah. How'd you, how'd you find that? Where is that uh, present? I, I, I listened to one of your podcasts. Uh, <laughs> um, are you and, a Giants uh, my, fan? No, no, I'm a Jet fan. I'm, oh, I'm you're a even Jet Mets. I'm a loser. Yeah, you're I'm a complete loser. loser. <laughs> but I married a Redskins fan. Oh, good for you. Good yeah. man. And we fly a Redskins flag come September, and the whole neighborhood drives by. They go, what are you doing? I go, uh, it's the wife. It's the wife. Well, so she was a Navy brat, so she moved around, and she lived down in uh, in, in Virginia and D.C., and she's like, Reds when the Redskins were were good, 94 93 whenever they won back there and she uh she's a redskin fan it's all over the house apparel like a drones out in the yard <laughs> well if she wants to go to a game whenever they start again i have a client who plays for them and um so anyway we could talk about that offline but uh yeah i knew i liked you see like well, there we go <laughs> there it is you know and we used to be losers in dc but the caps just won the nats won we're actually feeling pretty good about ourselves and um, so anyway, come to DC. We'll have a beer. We'll get to know each other better. And thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. I know you got a lot going on and all the best to you and your family and your daughters as they explore whatever's next for all of them. So, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Right. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You don't overcome adversity. You learn to live with it and you do the best you can. And that's what I did. I still walk with a limp. I still have problems going to the bathroom. I still have things that are are are, are issues every day that you and, and everyone else may take for granted. But guess what? I get up every morning and I look at the day like, what are we gonna do? How are we going to get things done? Just some days I, I tell my family, I'm sorry, I'm not making it. 
because my system's not working for me today. But it doesn't stop me from thinking positive. It doesn't stop me thinking that I'm not going to get something done and enjoy my life.